Murder in the North, Episode 18, Leather Gloves. Not far from the Swedish-Finnish border, about 700 kilometers north of Helsinki, lies the city of Ulu. With a population of 200,000, it's the most populous city in northern Scandinavia. It's also the second biggest at this latitude, after Mamansk in Russia. Ulu, with its temperate climate, is the birthplace of Yuka Torsten Lindholm, who enters this world on a warm summer's day in July 1965. At the time, the town is primarily known for its timber and salmon industry, but Yuka's mother works as a barmaid. Yuka's parents divorce when he's six, and he grows up with his mum and two stepsisters. He has a normal upbringing and does well in primary school. But when he hits puberty, he begins to change. He starts drinking alcohol and using drugs. He gets his hands on money by stealing his grandmother's checkbook and forging her signature. His days are spent watching horror films and playing video games. There's no way of knowing, but perhaps this is when Yuka starts wondering what it would be like to strangle a woman during sex. He becomes obsessed with this dangerous fantasy and will eventually go down in Finnish history as one of the country's most notorious serial killers. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. A murderer becomes a serial killer when he takes the lives of at least three people and derives great psychological satisfaction from his actions. The victims tend to have certain similarities, the same gender, for instance, or the same ethnic background, or they might share other physical characteristics, such as hair color. A serial killer murders one victim at a time over a longer period, instead of multiple people at once, like a mass murderer. In a study of serial killers, the American FBI identified several classic motives. Sexual gratification, anger, money, attention, or simply the desire to look death in the eye. Serial killers are rare in Scandinavia, that's why Yuka Torsten Lindholm's case is so extraordinary. Yuka starts to go down the wrong path as a teenager, and he soon becomes known to the local police. At first, it's mostly for minor offences and other misbehaviour, 
such as cracking open arcade machines and taking out the cash. But in 1981, when Yuka is 16, his behavior takes a more sinister turn when he sexually assaults a girl his own age. The two bump into each other in front of the lift after a party in a block of flats. He grabs hold of the girl and drags her down to the basement. There, he slams her head against the floor and tries to strangle her with her own scarf. She manages to struggle free and run back to the party while Yuka flees the basement. Later at the police station, the girl identifies Yuka from photos. When he's arrested, he can't really explain why he attacked her. We don't know what else he got up to in his teenage years. His next arrest comes in 1984, three years after the incident in the basement. This time, he's charged with breaking and entering, theft and robbery. Even though he's technically an adult, he's sentenced to one year in a young offender's institution. He will later describe his time there as awful, as he clashes repeatedly with the other youths who are held there. When he's released again in 1985, he moves back in with his 48-year-old mother, who is now living with a new boyfriend. A few months after his release, Yuka, his mother and her new partner go for a night out and drink themselves into a stupor. They end up arguing and eventually Yuka and his mother go home together. The following morning, a relative finds the 48-year-old woman dead in bed. There are no traces of violence. The house looks tidy and clean. The police are alerted, and although the autopsy report mentions signs of strangulation, the coroners are unable to conclusively establish the cause of death. Both Yuka and his mother's boyfriend are questioned, but neither of them are charged, and after a while, the investigation is called off. The mother died on the 26th of August, 1985. Nearly a year passes before the case is reopened. One evening in June 1986, two girls aged 12 wander around town by themselves. The two friends meet 21-year-old Yuka, who says he can lend them money, but they'll have to come with him and pick it up from his home. Once there, the mood changes abruptly. All of a sudden, Yuka becomes furious and accuses them of theft. One of the girls is locked into the bathroom. From behind the door, she hears strange noises. They're coming from Yuka, who's strangling her friend with a belt. After a while, Yuka opens the bathroom door. He orders the other girl to come out and lie on the carpet next to her dead friend. Yuka touches them both inappropriately and asks the living girl if she's still a virgin. The desperate victim is able to free herself and escape to the stairwell where she calls for help. Some of the neighbors hear her and call the police. Yuka, meanwhile, has managed to leave the building without being seen. A manhunt follows, 
and later that same night, he's found in a nearby forest and is arrested. By this time, his blood alcohol content is dangerously high. The murder of the 12-year-old is an open and shut case. After all, there's a witness. During questioning, Yuka claims that the two girls are prostitutes and says he was planning to pay them both for sex. Surprisingly, he now also admits to murdering his mother a year earlier. He says he was angry with her for divorcing his father, but also because of her lack of support while he was in the Young Offenders Institution. While he was locked up, she found a new boyfriend, which meant that his stepsisters had to move out of the house. But when the case is brought to trial in March 1987, Yuko retracts his confessions. He now claims to have been under the influence of drugs when he murdered his mother and the 12-year-old. He never intended to kill them. Yuko is only 22 when he's sentenced to nine years and seven months in prison for two murders, two attempted rapes and assault. On appeal, his sentence is reduced to eight and a half years after the judge reclassifies the mother's death as manslaughter instead of murder. In May 1992, after only six years behind bars, the now 26-year-old Yuka applies for parole. His application is approved. Following his release, Yuka moves in with his grandmother. Their first year together is a harmonious one, and all the indications are that Yuka has his life in order. But one morning in May 1993, his grandmother returns from holiday to find the lifeless body of a woman on the bathroom floor. She has been strangled with a fabric belt. Yuka is immediately arrested and questioned. In a lengthy statement, he describes meeting the 42-year-old woman in town to buy a weapon off her. During the interrogation, he makes all kinds of allegations and produces plenty of alibis. But there's so much forensic evidence that the police and public prosecutor are certain he's the perpetrator. On the 13th of December 1993, the court finds 28-year-old Yuka guilty of murder. He's sentenced to nine and a half years in prison. Citing earlier offences, the public prosecutor appeals in the hope of preventing Yuka from becoming eligible for parole again. Yuka also appeals the verdict and produces a new motive for the killing. He has a predilection for sadomasochism and can only achieve sexual satisfaction by abusing and choking his partner. He explains that the 42-year-old woman died after they'd slept together. He tied the fabric belt around her neck without intending to kill her. When he found her dead, he'd rushed to the cemetery to seek solace by his mother's grave. The court doesn't buy Yuka's new explanation, 
and in 1994, he's sentenced to ten and a half years in prison. He's transferred to a special unit for sex offenders. While in prison, Yuka meets a fellow inmate, Hanel Pentholm. She, too, has been convicted of murder, having killed her husband. Hanel and Yuka marry in prison and spend a few years together. During this time, Yuka converts to Catholicism and changes his name to Michael Maria Pentilla, which remains his name to this day. To avoid confusion, we'll continue to refer to him as Yuka in this story. Having violated his probation, some of the unserved years of his old sentence from 1987 are added to the ten and a half years, and so Yuka ends up spending a total of 15 years in prison before his application for parole is granted in November 2008. Yuka only manages to control himself for a few months. In May 2009, he's been free for about six months at this stage, he tries to strangle a woman he's invited into his home. Luckily, the woman escapes unharmed. The next month, he books a masseuse to come to his home. She's about to unfold the massage table when he grabs hold of her. Wearing leather gloves, he puts his hand around her throat, squeezes, and threatens to kill her. But then suddenly, he stops, and the woman manages to calm him down. She talks to him at length, and eventually she's able to leave the house unhurt. Yuka even gives her a kiss on the cheek in parting. Another month later, Yuka tries the same with the cleaning lady whom he hired to clean his house. He grabs her by the neck, but the woman manages to escape his clutches by biting his hand. He tells her that he's lonely and that he misses female company. The cleaning lady is able to get away and contacts the police. The following year, Yuka is back in court, and this time he's convicted of two counts of attempted murder and assault. He's sentenced to six years in prison and not eligible for parole. Following yet another appeal, the court reduces the sentence. The judge concludes that the prosecution failed to provide sufficient evidence that Yuka tried to murder the women and reclassifies the crimes as assault. Yuka gets off lightly. The three counts of assault between May and September 2009 earn him four years and five months in prison. And on appeal, the judge also rules that he's entitled to early release. For reasons unknown, the three incidents that occurred between May and September are dealt with in a single trial, whereas two other offences, which Yuka committed between May and August of the same year, are dealt with in another court case. These incidents are not brought before the court until 2012, three years after they happened. In August 2009, Yuka books a hotel room in his hometown, Ulu. He lures a woman to this room, where he holds her captive for ten hours and subjects her to repeated beatings and sexual abuse. A few weeks earlier, he raped a woman who went home with him 
because he promised her a pair of new boots. Again, Yuka is handed a custodial sentence, four years and four months this time. The prosecutor's request to deny Yuka parole is granted. While he's serving his sentence, Yuka and another inmate manage to escape. The two get away while on a supervised visit to a shop. Following a manhunt and tips from the locals, the police track them down after just a single day on the run. The case is plastered all over the media and leads to a heated debate about the Finnish criminal justice system. How is it possible that someone like Yuka is allowed to serve his sentence in an open prison? In the end, the justice minister promises to hold an inquiry. Yuka's escape results in his transfer to a high-security prison. After less than eight years, he's released again around Christmas 2016. In April 2017, Yuka writes an obscene love letter to his neighbor's daughter, a 17-year-old girl. In the letter, he explains how she can get in touch with him via private online chat rooms. A few months earlier, the girl saw an unknown man, whom she now knows to be her neighbour, in front of her window. She heard him trying to break into the house. Yuka is questioned, and his house is searched. There are indications that he was planning to assault the 17-year-old and that he intended to strangle her. The phone number he gave in the so-called love letter was the one he'd used to set up an Instagram account under the name Leather Gloves. The police want to remand Yuka in custody for planning an offence, but their bid is rejected. This means that Yuka remains a free man while prosecutors build their case against him. When the incident with the 17-year-old girl is finally brought to trial in June 2018, Yuka is sentenced to two years and six months in prison. But the verdict comes too late. A month earlier, Yuka connects with a 52-year-old sex worker on a dating site. They agree to meet in her home in Helsinki, where he strangles her, first with his hands, then with a belt, and finally with a pair of nylon tights. The woman is found a few days later by a concierge, trying to locate the source of a pungent odour. He eventually finds her body hidden under the bed. The evidence against Yuka in this case is overwhelming. First of all, his number comes up in the victim's call history. It turns out that he phoned her several months prior to the attack. CCTV footage from a kiosk shows Yuka buying a mobile phone and SIM card a day before the murder. It was this phone that he used to make the appointment with the sex worker. Other security camera images show Yuka with a bag which is retrieved later. It contains a leather belt and a pair of tights, and both contain the victim's DNA. In turn, 
Yuka's DNA is found on the deceased woman's belt in her home in Helsinki. The rest of the house has been thoroughly cleaned. The public prosecutors are convinced that they have enough evidence to charge Yuka with premeditated murder, an offence that's punishable by life imprisonment in Finland. But what does life in prison actually mean in the Finnish justice system? After 12 years behind bars, prisoners can apply to the Supreme Court in Helsinki for parole. If the request is turned down, a new application can be submitted two years later. That's to say after 14 years in prison. On average, prisoners who've been sentenced to life spend 14 years inside. However, there are exceptional cases in which parole is still rejected after 14 years. To date, 22 years is the longest any prisoner has ever been locked up in Finland. Yuka's trial is one of the most talked about cases ever. He's regarded as Finland's most dangerous man. Over the years, nearly every single newspaper has featured the photo of him with long, thinning dark hair, plucked eyebrows and blue eyes, on its front page. His nickname is The Serial Strangler, and most Finns are familiar with his face. In court, Yuka presents his version of events. The woman recognized him from photos in the media and panicked when he entered her home. That's why he strangled her. Yuka categorically denies planning the murder. He used the new unregistered mobile because he wanted to remain anonymous during sex. During this trial, the court orders another psychological evaluation. The report describes Yuka's sexual proclivities as a form of erotic asphyxiation, sexual arousal by deliberate oxygen deprivation. Normally, it's the person whose windpipe is squeezed who derives pleasure from it not the person doing it. Death by strangulation is a slow process. It can take five to ten minutes for a victim to die. That's why, the prosecutor argues, Yuka should have known that his actions would lead to death. But Yuka's lawyer counters this by saying that his client's actions shouldn't be regarded as cruel, because the woman actually died a quick death. The victim is also accused of lying about her age, and Yuka explains that his most recent stint in prison was incredibly tough for him because he received little psychological support. The prosecutor concludes the trial by saying that it all began with the murder of Yuka's mother in 1985. Since then, Yuka has only ever spent a few months, a year at most, in the outside world before killing again, or trying to. The prosecutor's argument doesn't fall on deaf ears. In July 2008, after many years of assaulting, raping, choking and murdering, Yuka is handed a life sentence for the premeditated murder of the 52-year-old woman. Yuka appeals the verdict and demands additional psychological evaluation. He cites temporary insanity and claims to have been incapable of controlling his behavior 
and appreciating the consequences of his actions. But psychiatrists find that Yuka can be held fully accountable for his actions at the time of the murder, and that he doesn't require psychiatric treatment. Yuka's appeal is rejected in April 2020. The murder was premeditated, and Yuka is sent to prison for life. Yuka Torsten Lindholm, now 57, and also known as Michael Maria Pentilla, can apply for parole in 2030. He and four other serious criminals are classed as so dangerous that the Finnish government is considering a change in the law to protect the population. The question is whether it can be applied retrospectively. Perhaps Finnish women had better commit Yuka's face to memory in case he becomes eligible for early release. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>